every single person in this room, every single one of us that's in here just now, will go through at some point in our life what we might call uh, a season of anguish. Every single one of us, every single person here, will go through times of grieve and great difficulty. Times when uh, time itself will seem to just slow down and, and stop. Uh, times when, for whatever reason, maybe bereavement, uh, maybe our own illness or uh, the illness of a loved one, times when every uh, passing moment and uh, every passing minute, every movement that we make will seem almost to be unbearably hard. We will all go through times of true and great despair. And how will we respond? Well, as we go through Mark's gospel and as we have the authority and as we have the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, revealed to us and veiled to us, uh, this morning what happens is that we encounter a couple of people in that very situation, in that very predicament. Isn't that the case? Like in Mark chapter 5, in Jairus and in this woman who's got an issue of blood, we encounter people who are at that point in the clutches of despair, aren't they? Aren't they at their lowest ebb? Haven't they just hit rock bottom? So as we examine these two cases in our time together this morning, what we will surely hear from God is that there is someone who can meet us in our pain and our anguish. That there is someone, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is someone who can rescue you from great depths of despair. Now, the hope this morning is to, to cover the ground from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Um, the hope is to note three things here, to unpack them in, in the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me set out the agenda. Let me tell you what we plan to do. Um, we'll note here in the text that Jesus heals the despairing. That's the first thing that we'll consider, that he heals the despairing. The second thing that we'll notice is that Jesus also raises the dead. But the third thing that we'll do is just to ask a question or seek to answer a question. Spiritually speaking, how can that be? How can Jesus do this? How can Jesus save? So Jesus heals the despairing. Jesus raises the dead. And then we'll ask the question, how? How? How can he do that? Okay. Before we turn to Scripture, friends, let's just pause and let's come before God once again in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are on holy ground and we know that. And so we ask you, Lord in heaven, that there would be an almighty working of your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning. Lord God, we are praying to you and we are asking you in the name of Jesus Christ as we approach the throne of grace boldly in his name, 
We ask, Lord, that you would minister to us, that you would minister in a in a in a real and a very powerful way to every single one of us in here. And again, Lord, we call to you for great works of salvation. We ask you for a working of your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you haven't done so already, please turn back to uh, Mark's Gospel and have Mark chapter 5 open there in front of you. Mark 5 from verse 21. You got it there? If so, let's think about that first point, that Jesus heals the despairing. That's the first thing. Jesus heals the despairing. Now, you see, don't you, that really what we've got here are two stories. They're kind of intertwined, aren't they? You know, Jesus has now, he's crossed to the east side of Galilee. Now he crosses back again to the west side. And he's, he meets Jairus, the synagogue ruler who, who immediately pleads with Jesus, come on, please come and back to my house and heal my daughter. So you've got that. But on the way to Jairus' house, do you see what happens? There's a second incident, isn't there? Where Jesus interacts with this woman with a blood. Here's the thing. It's that second one. It's the second incident, Jesus and this woman, that I want you and I just to think about and wrestle with for a moment. What do we learn about this woman? What do we learn about the situation? Well, most of you, I'm not asking to show your hands, but most of you have got Facebook or you've got access to Facebook, I'm guessing. Now, the other thing I'll guess is that probably... 99% of you who've got Facebook, you probably uh, follow that that page, that profile, Humans of New York. Okay? Now, for those of us who don't have Facebook, Humans of New York, um, really what it does, it, it seeks to record details of random people's lives that are met on the streets of New York, and then sort of post by post in Facebook, gradually it sort of reveals these uh, stories to the Facebook world, okay? Humans of New York. Now, what, what I find striking about Humans of New York is just how often you read it, and it's quite affecting stuff, isn't it? Like, you read a post, and then there's another post, and you get more of the, the details of that person's life, and it a lot of the time is actually gut-wrenching. Like, really sort of heartbreaking types going on in these people's lives. Isn't it? Now, here's the thing though. Isn't that the case with this woman that we're reading about here? Now, don't you read of her situation, especially as a Christian, and, and, and doesn't your heart go out to her? Like, doesn't your heart break? Do you see what Mark does very much like humans of New York? is Mark reveals her plight to us stage by stage. He doesn't do it in Facebook posts. Mark does it clause by clause. And he reveals it to us gradually. And we are supposed to empathize, to sympathize with this woman. I'm asking you, do you... Like, okay, just consider this woman's physical situation. Did you notice it? Like, this is a woman who has got a mystery illness. 
But it's a mystery illness that is utterly ruining our life. And don't you see that it's a humiliating issue? What is it? It's this issue of blood. The first century, man. And what are we told? We are told that this illness is only getting worse. And then you think about her emotional situation. See, here's the deal. I know that quite a number of you in the congregation over the years, you have had mystery illnesses. Illnesses that have been undiagnosed, haven't you? And you could stand up this morning and you could testify just how draining that can be. You know, going to a doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment, going to a specialist after a specialist, and every single time it's a dead end. Do you see? That's the situation of this woman here. And then, even more than that, notice her financial situation. Just look at it. Look at verse 26. We could easily skim over that, but look at it. The truth that she has spent everything she has. Don't you think that is just an awful detail? You see what it means, don't you? This woman in the first century here has worked through the pain. And she has sold everything she has. And why? Just to try and get some answers to what's going on. Just to try and get some relief. And what's happened? Nothing! Like this is a, this is a tragic picture, isn't it? It's a picture of utter despair. Ah. But then, notice with me, the woman's healing. And you see what happens? Boldly, she pushes her way through this big crowd. And she nears Jesus. And she, you can see her, she puts her hand through the crowd and she reaches out and she, she touches Jesus' garment and what happens? The woman is healed. Now, what you and I are supposed to appreciate here is the immediacy of the healing. The immediacy of the healing. You see, what is it that I have not mentioned so far about this woman? What have I not said? I've said nothing about how long she was ill. But you noticed it, didn't you, when Adrian was reading out scripture there? You noticed just how long this woman had been in this situation. What was it? What was it? Twelve long years. Now, you chew on that. You think about that. Twelve long years of pain for her. And and twelve long years of, of poverty. And twelve long years of doctor's appointments. Twelve long years of hopelessness. But now what? On that day, what happens? She encounters the Lord Jesus Christ and immediately the blood stops to flow. And immediately and instantaneously now there is a flow of well-being through her body. She encounters Jesus and directly, immediately, this woman is healed. But friends, what we must also notice here is the woman's interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're told, aren't we, uh, that if you ask a stupid question, 
you get a stupid answer. I say that a lot to my children. If you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. Now, isn't that what the disciples think is going on here? Jesus is touched by the woman. And Jesus stops and he turns round. And what does he do? He asks the crowd, who touched me? Now, the disciples, you can see them, they're sort of you know, nudging each other and they're laughing. They're saying, Jesus, what are you saying? Who's touched you? Look around. There's hundreds of people here and they're all desperate. They're all to touch you. They're all barging into you. And you're asking who touched you? Jesus, everybody here has touched you. But Jesus is serious, isn't he? And I think perhaps the crowd stop here and silence descends. And, and do you see what happens? Our woman, our woman, she, she steps forward and she tells Jesus exactly what has just occurred. And do you see what he says to her? Do you see what he says about how she has been healed? He doesn't look at her and say, oh, you touched my garments. My garments are magical. And he doesn't look at her and say, well, you barged into me. Everyone who has barged into me has been healed this morning. He looks at this poor, despairing woman and he says to her, love daughter, your faith, it is your faith that's made you well. It was that she believed. It was that she trusted in the power and the authority of Jesus. It was that. It was him that has made her well. Now, I'm sure you would agree with me if I was to say that this is one of the great stories of Scripture, isn't it? Isn't this account one of the wonderful accounts in Scripture? But I've, I've got a question for you. And please consider this. Why, why is it, do you think, that we find this story so affecting? Like we read of this woman and, and her situation. Why is it that our hearts moved by her predicament? Don't you think, is it not the case that it's because you and I have known people in that situation? Isn't that true for you? Like you, you, you have known people who have hit rock bottom. Like you've seen people through grief and through illness and through financial ruin, you've seen people who have hit rock bottom, people who have been at their lowest ebb, people who have been in despair, haven't you? Well, do you see in the story what, what we as Christians must do? As the people of God, we must be in our lives ever alert to people who might be despairing. Why? So that we might point them to where they can be healed. So that we can point despairing people to the Christ. But here's the thing, maybe, maybe, it isn't people you know. Maybe it's you this morning who's come in here knowing nothing of Jesus. And maybe it's you who can relate to the account of this woman. Can you? Can you relate to her despair? 
Well, if so, see in these verses just who can bring relief in your life. Like, see in these verses that it is Jesus, it is Jesus and He alone who can heal you from the true actual causes of your despair. He can heal you, He can forgive you for your sin. And I want you to see that you can have that sort of healing immediately. And you can have that if you will only do what the woman does here. Do you see the common ground? What the woman does here, what Jairus does before her, what the demon-possessed man did before Jairus. You can have healing if you will only come in faith and fall at Jesus' feet. Friend, will you do that today? If you do that, there is healing. There's restoration. There is forgiveness. He will meet you in your despair. So this heals the despairing. A second thing that we notice here is that Jesus raises the dead. Jesus raises the dead. And here we obviously, we must focus on the second of these uh, stories that's intertwined in this account. The one that sits either side of the woman, the one that involves Jairus and him pleading for his daughter. Jairus and his daughter. And friends, I hope you, you see that the healing of the woman plays an incredibly important role in the story of Jairus. I mean, you see what's happened, don't you? Jesus, in stopping to heal this woman, has been delayed on his way to Jairus' house, hasn't he? And that little delay there proves utterly catastrophic for Jairus. You see what happens, do you? Jesus heals the woman, and who arrives on the scene? It's a group of messengers from Jairus' house. And, and do you see the news that they bring? They arrive and they come up to Jairus and they say, Jairus, friend, your daughter, your wee daughter, your 12-year-old daughter, Jairus, she's died. It's too late. Don't bother this man anymore. Your daughter is dead. Don't you love the way that our Lord deals with that little snippet of information. Do you see what happens here? Look at verse 36. Like the force of the word here, the beginning there, is that Jesus overhears these messengers and their little bit of news. But do you see? Such is the power of our Savior. Such is the power of the Christ. What's he able to do? He is simply able to ignore the news of death. He can ignore the news of death. And then after encouraging Jairus, they carry on together to Jairus' house. Now, I know we're down on children uh, this morning, but a few of the boys, uh, the young boys of the church, they're at that stage, that sort of age uh, that all boys get to where, where, you know, they get obsessed uh, with outer space. You know, all boys get to a stage, well, most boys get to a stage where it's all about rockets and spaceships and so forth. I'm sure if the, some of the boys there were at the front, uh, they would be able to tell us what happens to a space rocket when it goes into orbit. 
The rocket goes up, exits our atmosphere. What happens? It separates, doesn't it? Like uh, the main body of the rocket is left behind and then the smaller, more important bit carries on to its destination. Okay? Now, isn't that the sort of thing that happens here? See, this we've got a huge crowd and it is travelling towards Jairus' house. Huge crowd. But what does Jesus do? He stops and he separates the crowd, doesn't he? He breaks it up. He leaves the majority of the crowd behind. And now he just takes with him the inner circle. Do you notice that? It's Peter, James and John he takes with him, as well as this little child's parents. And then we're given this wonderful hint of what's about to occur. Just in the way that Jesus greets these mourners. They arrive at Jairus' house. And there's people wailing and they're crying and they're mourning. and, and, And Christ comes to them and he says to them, Why are you crying? The child is not dead. She is but asleep. Could it be, could it be that this death will be temporary? And friends, I would ask you to do this with me. We we did the same thing before with uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. But I would ask you this morning, would you do this with me? Would you put yourself in that room? In Jairus' house. Would you put yourself there? What do you see? What's going on there? You have Jesus. And you've got Peter and you've got James and John. But you also have Jairus and his wife. And they are weeping. And they are sobbing loudly. Why? Because also in that room, on the bed, is their little kid. Like their 12-year-old. And the child is lying there and it is lifeless. The child is dead. Now, what do you see? What happens here? Jesus goes over to the bed. And he speaks. And he takes the little girl by the hand. And, and, And what happens? Could it be that there is... Life returning to her body. Like she, she begins to breathe again. And then before long she sits up. Wait a minute, she stands up. She begins to walk. Do you see it? This man who had power over the winds and the waves. And the man who had power over the demon possessed. And the man who had just a moment ago power over life ruining illness. Do you see? That he has power over our greatest foe. That he has power over death. Over death itself. Now there, there are a couple of essential applications that we have to make here. So first of all, let me speak to the boys and girls who are at the back. Boys and girls, can you hear me? Are you following story? You see then, boys and girls, that halfway through this story, there's a little girl and she is lying on her bed and she's dead. Well, boys and girls, the truth that we learn in Holy Scripture is that unless God works in a person's life, that all people and all humanity 
they're in that state in their spiritual lives that unless Jesus works and unless Jesus transforms a person by grace, that their spiritual lives are as dead as dead as dead as dead as dead as dead can be. So I wonder, kids, if you can see how this story works and how it functions. Do you see it? It's not just telling us that Jesus has power to raise people to life physically, although that's part of it. The story is teaching us that Jesus has the power to raise people to life spiritually as well. So here's, here's the question that I want to ask the boys and girls. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. Do you see, boys and girls, in this story of a fellow child, do you see what God can do for you today if you will only put your trust in Jesus? Do you see it? That can happen to you. That Jesus Christ can raise you. He can impart spiritual life to you. But that's only half the job, isn't it? It's one thing to speak to the kids. Surely, given the story, surely we, surely we have to address the Christian parents of the church. Like, we're a reformed church, okay? We believe this. We believe that our God is a covenant-keeping God. We believe that. We believe that God has a very special place in his heart for the children of the covenant community. But isn't it, isn't it almost unbearably hard when we see our little children, when we see them spiritually lifeless, when we see our children not respond to the gospel, when we see our children seem to be entirely dead to the things of the good news, it is so hard. Is, is that where you are at? You know, are there young people in your immediate family, your extended family that are dead to the gospel? Well, I think The words that Jesus says to Jairus here are then so pertinent to you, aren't they? I mean, think about the situation. Jairus' little girl lies there dead. And Jesus looks at the man. He looks at the parent. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. Believe. Do not fear. Believe. Friends, we must believe in God's love for covenant children. We must surely believe in God's power to transform our children. Perhaps we should go away from here today resolving to beg God to do that. To resolve to pray increasingly this week that God would do what we are seeing here. That he would impart spiritual life that he would raise to life our children, the children of this congregation. So we see that Jesus heals the despair, and we see that Jesus raises the dead. The third thing is that question, how? How? 
can Jesus save? And, and here what we're doing is we're dealing with a problem. And it's a problem that as a congregation and as Christians, we need to keep coming back to. How is it possible for Jesus to save sinners? Now, how is it possible for Jesus to raise you and I to life? I mean, when we think about that, is that not the most, isn't that a disgustingly unjust thing to do? Like if God pardons people who are wicked, isn't God then turning a blind eye to evil? If God saves someone like me, isn't he allowing wickedness and sin just to pass by? How can Jesus Christ legitimately and justly this morning offer us new life? Well, what did we do that was slightly unusual this morning? We read the whole of Mark chapter 5. I wonder, when we did that, did you notice a theme, a thread that runs through every verse of that chapter? Did you notice the theme of the unclean? Did you see it? If not, follow me. Where was it that Jesus journeyed to at the very start of the chapter? We might differ on how we pronounce it, but he travelled to the region of the Gerasenes, didn't he? The east side of Galilee. Wait a minute, to the Gentile area. To an area that was viewed as being entirely unclean by the Jews. Okay, fine. What did he do when he arrived there? Who confronts Jesus in that region? Do you see? Who is it? Who comes running to meet him as he gets off the boat? Is it, it's, a, it's a demon-possessed man, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, yes. But look at what Scripture really says in verse 2. Have a look. In fact, if you're using the church Bible, look at the footnote of verse 2. What is this man? He's a man who is possessed by a... What sort of spirit is it? It is an unclean spirit. That's repeated, I think, three or four times in the text. An unclean region, an unclean man. And wait a minute, what is it? To where does Jesus send these evil spirits? To 2,000 what? Ah, to 2,000 pigs the most unclean of all the animals to a Jew. Is there a thread, a theme developing here? Wait a minute, what, what do we do today? We go into this story today. What was the ailment that afflicts the woman? An issue of blood. A most, most serious issue for a Jew. Why? Because according to Leviticus 15, for the entire duration of the blood flow, that woman would be deemed to be completely, ceremonially, religiously unclean. And then what about the apex of the chapter? Jesus enters into this girl's room in Jairus' house, and what lies there in front of him? A 
a dead body. Again, something that would render all those close by religiously, ceremonially unclean. This theme, this thread, it runs from the beginning of the chapter all the way through to the end. And I ask you this, what does Mark emphasize about Jesus' attitude all the way through the chapter? He is the one who instigates the journey to the unclean region, is he not? He is the one who interacts with this demon-possessed man. He is the one who sends the demons into the pigs. He is the one who is touched by the woman. He is the one who goes over to a dead body and takes the dead body by the hand. Friends, do you see what we have here? In Mark chapter 5, We have this glorious illustration of Jesus' purpose in coming to the earth. Why had he come? He had come to associate with the unclean. He had come to associate with wicked, sinful humanity. But you know that there's more to it than that, don't you? He hadn't just come to associate at the apex, at the cross... He would bear our sin and he himself would become unclean, wouldn't he? And do you see what that means? It means that he himself was the path of justice for God. You see it, don't you? God is not unjust to offer his people salvation. It's not an unjust thing to do. It's not an illegitimate thing to do. Why not? Because sin has been punished. It has been punished. Jesus Christ is the place of justice. And why? And why? So that this morning in here, the now risen Lord Jesus Christ, he might offer you legitimately and justly healing. He might offer you forgiveness for your sin, he might offer you salvation. And for the Christians here, you see what Jesus' death and resurrection means for us, don't you? Surely this morning you see what it means for us. Think about the little girl. (laughs) Think about the little girl. We see here because of Jesus' death and resurrection that we too shall rise. That our death is entirely swallowed up in his victory. Do you know what? See, when you die as a Christian, the people that you're going to leave behind and your loved ones, they are going to be able to say to other people what Jesus says here. They're going to be able to say this. They're going to be able to say, why, why, why on earth are you weeping? Like, why are you crying? They're not dead. They are but asleep. It is temporary. We are going to rise. And on that morning, what shall we hear? We will hear the voice of Jesus. And what will he do? He will take us by the hand. We shall rise and be forever with him. Friends, there is spiritual life. There is eternal spiritual life 
in Christ Jesus. And because of the cross, he and he alone can meet you this morning in your despair. Let's pray.